Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts of the podcast. We have a very special treat for you today. We have Tony Ferguson with us. He has done many businesses and and currently the founder of Amplify Energy. And uh, Tony and I met in Michigan this summer, which is a good place to be when when uh, your residents are in Texas, in my case, and Florida, in Tony's case, and we met through Lee Strobel Ministries, but uh, you're in for a real treat. Say hello to everybody, Tony. Thanks for being with us. Hello, everyone. It's great to uh, be on with Jeff today. Tony, thanks again for being with us. We usually try to start the conversation with just some background on you. Where did you grow up? What was that like? What was your family like growing up? Well, Jeff, I grew up in uh, Southern Kentucky, a little small town of about 2,000 people, uh, one stoplight, sort of the epitome of small town America. I grew up in a uh, two-parent home, uh, Southern Baptist. Uh, my parents took me to church every Sunday, a lot of times on Sunday night, and we even had what we call prayer meeting on on Wednesday night. So I grew up in a, uh, you know, certainly a faith-based family. And fortunately, that has uh, stayed with me uh, throughout my uh, entire lifetime. Well, and I know that's I know that's a passion of yours is Christian education, and we we may get into that. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. But one of the things I find so fascinating about your story is I think you've raced anything that's not nailed down. So maybe when did that start? When did the love of racing and just take us through the litany of all that kind of part of your life? Well, it's almost impossible for me to put a timetable on it, Jeff, when I, my first memory of what I call the joy of speed. I certainly can. uh, I grew up on a farm. My dad allowed me to drive tractors and trucks at a very early age. In fact, I was driving a farm tractor when I was four years old, and uh, I always enjoyed driving the tractor fast, the trucks, uh, whatever. And so my dad was very tolerant. I don't think he understood it quite, but I drove numerous tractors too fast, uh, turned them over. Somehow God allowed me to uh, survive through all of that. But uh, (laughs) I've turned over just about every farm implement you can imagine by basically just going too fast. So that was sort of my uh, first memories of speed. From there, I got into uh, horses, and I always wanted to have the fastest horse. So it transferred from uh, a four-legged creature to uh, motorcycles, and uh, motorcycles to me were just uh, extremely thrilling. The ability to not only to go fast, but to jump and and uh, do all the things. So I uh, became a uh, a racer in college. Uh, there was not a, a racetrack in my hometown, but when I went off to college in Bowling Green, Kentucky, there was a, a local racetrack, and uh, I had a motorcycle. I entered, did fairly well in my very first race, but ended up winning my second race. And that sort of set me on a course of uh, egotism, you know, being proud, 
just the the ego of uh, and the adrenaline of, of what it's like to win. Yeah. And uh, and so I was fairly successful. I've always had uh, God bless me with great reflexes and the ability to, you know, control various motorsports and and uh, for motorcycles, I went on to race uh, everything from airplanes to helicopters to boats, personal watercraft, uh, just about anything with a motor. Uh, <laughs> I've raced it and I've wrecked it. And, uh, <laughs> All right. It's um, one of the reasons that I guess I feel so blessed today. And it uh, it sounds like uh, like bragging, Jeff, but to me, it's totally about God's grace because it's hard for me to put a number in. Again, it will sound like exaggeration, but when you race and if you win, you are all, almost always on the edge of a crash. Yeah. That's what and it takes to win, right? You have to push the limit. What it takes to, you have to go to the limit because the next guy is probably going to go to the limit. Exactly. Sometimes you go over the edge and you crash. and Again, it, it's a fabricated number, but I'm sure I've had more than a thousand crashes it, just in, in racing and crashes that other people died from. Wow. Uh, I always seem to walk away from with, sure, I had lots of broken bones and things like that, but I never spent one night in the hospital from my injuries where other people died and, and et cetera. So, that's part of, of, I still wonder to this day why yeah. God has spared my life when other people lost their lives, basically doing exactly the same thing that I did for years. I've, I asked you this question when we were together in Michigan, but I, I can't remember the exact number. And maybe you don't know the exact number, but I asked you how many <laughs> thousand crashes. It's hard to even get our minds around those of us that haven't done those things. But how many broken bones do you suppose you've had ballpark? Oh, I don't know, 20, 30. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you don't know the number, that just cracks me up. I, I love it. I love uh, it. You know, most of other than I had a really hard crash that sort of ended my career that uh, where broke my collarbone and it came all the way through, you know, through the skin and up into my jawbone. And Whoa. that was a pretty severe crash. But, you know, broken legs, broken ankles, broken ribs, broken wrists. You know, all those things, you know, it, when you're young, it, you get over those. I mean, a, a, yeah. you know, a broken wrist is not a big deal or a broken arm is not a big deal or or whatever it may be. You just uh, you just press on. And that's because it, I know it sounds crazy and maybe for a lot of people, but the adrenaline thrill is more pleasurable than the pain that that, that comes from outweighs the pain. Yeah. The it, joy it, outweighs the pain or the adrenaline or whatever. I, I, that, that's a, that's an equation we can understand. Now, I think that's such an interesting part of your story for the adrenaline junkies out there. They're going to relate to that, but, but even just to understand your personality a little bit, haven't got to know you a little bit, you know, you're just kind of all in all the time. I think that's part of how God made you. And, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about uh, God's grace and protecting you through that, I was thinking, uh, you know, we're going to be together in Florida. And I was thinking, does that mean I should ride with Tony everywhere because God's protection around him? Or is he due 
for a crash. So anyway, uh, I'll, I'll ride with you anytime because of the good uh, uh, reflexes. But but how do you think that affected your career? So we talked about being in college, and I know you didn't have maybe the most quote normal college experience because you told me every weekend you're out doing these races and this sort of thing. But how did uh, uh, maybe you can talk more about college or your first job and maybe how how did that sort of personality start to affect your you know post college or or career? Well, as I was saying earlier, I was very blessed, uh, Jeff, to win uh, my very first race, and I can still remember it to this day. You know, it's amazing what ego does if, you know, you probably have a propensity for an inflated inflated ego. And uh, I remember the night, it was actually on a Saturday night that I won my very first race. And, you know, people f- were coming over and and slapping me on the back and people I didn't even know and telling me tell telling me how fast I was and what a great job I did and and et cetera. And certainly as a young person, that gets to you. It gets to your head. Mm-hmm. And you uh, you know, you want you want that feeling again. And so as you get out into the business world, uh, you at least for me, I sort of got the same adrenaline rush from accomplishing whatever that that I was going after. And the one thing I learned in racing is that you, uh, you know, if you want to win, you you have to take chances and you have to be prepared to to crash. And business, in a lot of respects, is the same way. If you want to win, you've got to be prepared to lose, but you've got to be prepared to, to be all in. You have to focus. And so most people, that's not true. I shouldn't say most people. I think that some people enjoy relaxation. I don't. Relaxation is a waste of time for me. It, to me, it seems to be unproductive. I want to be accomplishing something every minute of my life. I want to be winning every minute of my life. Now, that doesn't mean I will, but it's important to me to try. Yeah, you yeah. Know, not not trying to me is the worst defeat that you can that you can suffer. It's just detrimental to the human spirit. So okay, so you get out of college, and we know you're an entrepreneur now. But were you always that way from day one? Pretty. Pretty much, Jeff. I uh, like I said, I was very fortunate. Uh, made some uh, pretty good connections in my racing career. Hmm. So right out of college, I uh, applied with Yamaha Motor Corporation of America and obtained a Yamaha motorcycle franchise. Oh, um, and so we built a building and and opened a motorcycle shop, and I ran that that business for about three years it was semi-successful it was sort of my first uh, lesson in um, low volume and low markup does not a business make (laughs) yeah bad combination it was a a bad combination but it taught me uh, a lot i like having unlimited potential i'm not an hourly worker and so 
I initially thought that I could increase the volume. And if I could increase the volume, it could offer, you know, additional opportunity. That didn't work out in that particular instance. But as I went on to get involved in other businesses, I found that to be true in, in some particular businesses. And so not to belabor some of the, the various ventures, but um, I work with my parents in their business. They had a, a carpet, furniture, and drapery business. And in working with them, I learned pretty quickly that your your profit was basically limited to the amount of inventory that you had and the number of customers that you could attract. And you could calculate that. And so yeah. being in a small town, it wasn't like that that we were going to attract 100,000 customers. We weren't. Now, it did teach me that you had to be really good because you have to have repeat customers in that environment. And so if you do a good job, you'll get repeating customers. But at the end of the day, and certainly after a couple of years, you can pretty much calculate what your profit's going to be. And you find yourself stuck. And are you willing to make X amount of dollars, whatever that may be, and it may be a nice living, but is that what you know, you're going to be able to uh, be satisfied with for the rest of your life? And for me, it wasn't. I learned to, to have a lot of disdain for the limitations, uh, not the business, but the limitations. And I knew I had to move on. Well, I have a feeling that there, you had a few vehicles in your life where, let's just say, the top end of the range, the limiter, whatever they call that, right? I'm, I'm guessing you found a way to uh, take the ceiling off of most of the things that you had that had a motor on them. So you are not a, a big guy on uh, ceilings, as we've talked about. So how do you make that transition? How did you get into a business that has a little more uh, upside potential? Well, certainly at the time, I didn't attribute it to God, but now I attribute my whole life to God. And, you know, it's sort of like when you're in the midst of, in the midst of a battle, it's hard to, to see all the various uh, skirmishes and everything that are going on, and it's hard to see the, the big picture. For me, I end up getting in the oil and gas business uh, strictly by by accident. And I believe that now it was fate, fate in that the direction that God chose for me to go. But I wasn't trained to be in the oil business, had no background in the oil business or anything like that. But uh, he gave me an entrepreneurial spirit. And so, you know, not to belabor a long story, but a large oil well was hit about a mile from my house in 1980 and the well was out of out of control it made national news and uh, as i said it was only a mile from my house i have no idea the well was hit on a saturday morning about 10 o'clock there was a lot of poopala over it over the next uh, 48 hours but by monday morning i made a decision to become a lease agent and 
go out and start acquiring oil and gas leases. And at the time, it was nothing more than trying to be a broker to buy a lease from Jeff and and sell it to Tom. And that's what I started doing. Because of my family's background in the area, we pretty much knew everybody in the county. And so I was able to go and, and acquire a lot of leases. My parents, I think, were well-respected, paid their bills. And at that time, you could go into the local bank and sign a simple note, basically the size of a, coast, uh, a postcard. If you didn't have the credit or you were young, you could get a cosigner. And in my case, I ended up uh, borrowing $50,000. Uh, my parents co-signed for me, and I took that money and went out and started acquiring leases. Uh, my uh, One of my family members was an attorney, and he gave me what uh, to this day is called 1088 uh, lease forms, oil and gas lease forms, and I just carried those out. He showed me where to ask people. You, I basically filled in the names, agreed <laughs> on some terms, agreed on some money. And in this area, it still is, in a lot of respects, is a cash economy. And so on the lease form, you would fill in $10 in for any and all receivables. And theoretically, the lease form is showing that I'm paying $10 for the lease. In reality, I carried cash and I would maybe give Farmer John $10,000 in cash and I would get his lease for a year. No one really knew what I would I paid for that, only me and Farmer John. Because of this big well, and at the time it was right at the end of the era of oil embargo, oil prices had spiked oh, up. Right. Uh, I turned that uh, $50,000 into $5 million in less than a year. Holy smokes. That, that was the adrenaline rush that, that I was looking for. And no brilliance on my part, just luck and, and some intuition. But, and I won't give you all the examples, but I'll give you one specific example because I remember very vividly to this day the adrenaline rush that I got from completing that transaction. And I had purchased a 150 acre lease from a local farmer and paid $5,000 for it. 60 days later, I sold the exact same lease for $500,000. Yeah. A profit of $495,000 in a 60-day period. That basically altered my mental state to this day. Yeah. Because you know, there's there's lots of different forms of adrenaline, and I keep referring back to my racing career, but in my very first race that I won, I was just thrilled to win. Whether it was by a foot, it didn't matter. I was just thrilled to win. But as I practiced and I got better, I wanted to win by more. It wasn't enough to win. I wanted to win by a lap. I wanted to lap the field. And occasionally, I could lap a good portion of the field. Certainly not everybody. But 
there's nothing like starting on a starting line where everyone is equal. And before the end of the race, you're actually passing people that you have caught and lapped and you're still pulling away and the checker flag hasn't fallen. That's a phenomenal feeling. I'm not saying it's a great feeling, <laughs> and I'm not saying it's a Christian feeling, but I'm saying that it is a great feeling. And so the parallel to that is, is the business deal. It's not yeah. just to invest $5,000. It wasn't enough to make $5,000 and double your money, but the thrill of turning $5,000 into $500,000 is lapping the field. And when you see, now you begin to wonder what the, did I sell the lease too cheap? Could I have gotten a million dollars? What's the upside? And you feel like that, that you're not limited. Yeah. And that's an incredible thing to chase. But it uh, also sounds like, so, uh, so, this is all in Kentucky, right? That you were doing this with the it lease. It was in Kentucky. And so, and how old are you when you sort of start this venture? How old were you when you started? I said you said over five years you did all that, but but how old were you roughly? Well, I was twenty-two. Wow! So, like mm -hmm. right out of school. I mean, you did the Yamaha deal, and then yeah, were you doing this concurrently, or was that like the next deal? It, no, I had uh, right out of uh, right out of college. Um, I uh, acquired the Yamaha motorcycle franchise only for a couple of years, worked for my parents for a short while, and and then fate intervened and I got into the oil and gas business. And it was really been in it ever since, right? How how did that how did that evolve from that? So you're kind of brokering these leases. What what's the next phase for you? Well, I uh, acquired a number of leases, sold uh, sold a number of them, made some really nice returns quickly. And and at the same time, some of the leases that I sold and brokered, uh, people came in and drilled, and they also had success. And at the time, I started doing the math that uh, hey, and, and not all deals were the same as I as I was saying a while ago. Not all of them had the return. You know, some of the leases I might have bought for ten thousand and sold for twenty or thirty, sure. and so there wasn't that huge return. And so I decided to drill and uh, I thought, hey, there's more money because when you do the math, uh, if you uh, 100 barrels per day was sort of a magic number uh, that people were hoping to achieve from an oil well. And if you could hit a 100 barrel a day well, it was some really nice income. At that time, oil was about $40 a barrel. So, you know, if you get 100 barrels a day at at forty dollars a barrel is four thousand a day. You know, times uh, you know thirty days is one hundred and twenty thousand a month, and you start multiplying that times twelve, and it doesn't mean that you can achieve it, but again, it's almost the unlimited potential. And so, rather than sell a lease, why not drill it? And if it's successful, I'll ultimately make a lot more. And so, I started drilling, got into the drilling business went from by myself to a partner uh, from that to uh, 30 employees uh, and all that money sort of uh, corrupted because I went out and bought the local country club. I bought helicopters, airplanes, houses, cars, 
all well equipment, bulldozers, you name it. And, you know, I thought I needed it. It sounds like maybe that hit a little bit of a dead end. How did that, did you, we talked a little about this in the before, but where did all that kind of lead you? Well, I was in 1980. And in 1980, 81, 82, and 83, I did extremely well and was profitable every single year. Uh, by 1984, things were starting to go go the other way. Uh, prices were going down. Uh, I'd run up a half a million dollar a month overhead. And so when, when you've got a $500,000 per month overhead, you have to have the revenue. And as my revenue started to fall, all of my projections were wrong. I I did projections based on $40 a barrel. And by 1987, all had actually gone to $5 a barrel. Mm. And so I went from making, you know, several hundred thousand dollars per month to losing several hundred thousand dollars per month. And what happens when you do that, and especially when I was young, I didn't make the, the cuts that I needed to make. Mm-hmm and started selling off property, which is your lifeblood. So if you start selling your blood faster than your body can replenish it before long, you're in trouble. And that's exactly what I did. I started selling off revenue faster than I could replace the revenue. And by 1987, I was, was broke. So were a lot of people. I mean, I, I, uh... I was working for uh, Arthur Anderson in 1990, and they sent me to the RTC. You got to be a little bit, uh, you probably got to be 50 plus to remember what that was because the banks, you know, a lot of them got taken over and a lot of them had loans to, to, to the, you know, the energy business and, and all kinds of things going on. The SNL crisis, right, happened and all that. So did you get caught up in that or did you just kind of hand it all back to the bank or, or was there a lot of, did you have a lot of issues with the bank in those times? No, fortunately I started selling and was able to pay, uh, pay down the majority of, of my debt. At one time I was heavily in debt. Uh, ultimately that's where I think that my, my faith uh, came in. So rather than leave people stranded, I ultimately ended up selling everything I owned, my home, everything, and paid it against the bills. And so I got I got out of it almost unscathed. Yeah. Zero is better than minus millions, shall we say. Exactly. And so ultimately, you know, I was able to to recover. But as a as a young, you know, mid-20s, I'd sort of been at the the highest of highs, you know, owning airplanes and helicopters and country clubs to being being broke and and uh, driving a a ten year old van that my parents gave me. That's a pretty humbling experience. Yes. And as I look back, uh, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, because you know it, it's easy when everything is going great. Uh, it's easy for the ego to spiral out of control. And so as I think back today, I cringe at uh, some of the things I did, the way I treated people, uh, and and et cetera. Do I wish I could do it over? Absolutely. Because in, in my 
judgment of myself today, I was not a good human being. And did you, you know, I think when those things happen, sometimes people run from God or lean into God. It, it sounds like you learned a lot of lessons. What, what was your walk with God like at that time? Oh, it's uh, still pretty much non-existent. My ego was still uh, front and center. And uh, I went through about uh, three years of uh, really just trying to figure out, out a way to bounce back, being determined. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to me, it wasn't a lot different than uh, getting hurt in a race. And now you're you're in a delay while your body heals before you can win again. And that's sort of how I approached it. Hey, I did it once. I can do it again. It was all about me. I don't ever recall praying and saying, God, you know, what are you trying to teach me? Why did you let this happen to me? I didn't blame God. You know, I blame circumstances, but my arrogance said, okay, so what? I'll figure it out. I'm just going to go do it again. Just like and, you talked about earlier. Hey, if you're in a race and you crash, okay, you're out of that race, line it up next week. You, when you get healthy, you line it up again, let's go. You just had a financial and career crash. No big deal. It's a, I really... I think uh, this is it's so easy to I, I like the way you're drawing those parallels of your personality because it's really easy to follow. OK, so you see. So, so how do you get back in the race after all this? Well, this uh, it's an interesting stint. I, when I said three years in 1987, I basically lost everything I had uh, through selling it, paying the banks down and et cetera. Right. Uh, and I had an investor in Tampa, Florida, who. Uh, owned a jewelry store, a very small uh, mom-and-pop shop jewelry store. Uh, they were wanting to retire and couldn't find a buyer. And so they basically said, hey, Tony, come to Florida, learn to be a jeweler, take over this jewelry store. It'll guarantee you a living. You can make a hundred grand a year and you need time to heal. Well, at the time, I wasn't thinking heal for, for what? I was just thinking, I need to make a living for my wife. Right. And so I ended up moving in 19, uh, latter part of 1987 to Tampa, Florida, went to school to, to get my uh, GIA certificates and diamond grading yeah. to become a jeweler and started running this jewelry store on a daily basis. For the first year, uh, it, it's new. Uh, it's... Um, somewhat exciting but within a year i came to despise it again because it was reminiscent of my mom and dad's business you're back in the drapery business I'm, same I'm deal back, i'm back in the the limited business right the ceiling uh, you're feeling the ceiling again the ceiling is there there's no way to get around it is all relative to the amount of advertising dollars and inventory that you have and so after the first year, I started plotting and planning because I was addicted to the oil business and what I viewed as unlimited potential. Yeah. And so I, uh, uh, I started saving every penny, uh, started traveling back and forth to Texas when I could, uh, trying to figure out how I could buy a project and, and get back in. And uh, fate hit again. It's, it's just an incredible story. And I think I think it's, uh, I shouldn't say fate. I think it's God's intervention. Again. Well, yeah. 
but I closed my jewelry store. I was at home about eight o'clock at night. I got a call from my mother. She said, Tony, have you heard about the big whale? And I said, no, mom, I haven't. And she said, well, they've hit a, a big whale on Cousin Jack's place. Now, Cousin Jack's place uh, was, uh, was our family, Jack Ferguson. He had a farm next to my mom and dad, and a well had, had just been hit. This was in actually 1990, and the well was making 4,000 barrels a day. Wow. Uh, oil had shot up, and you don't have to be very quick to figure out that 4,000 barrels a day times $40 a barrel is 160,000 a day. And that's considerably more than I could make in a year in the jewelry business. Right. <laughs> um, so my mind was swirling. Um, I hung up and I remember thinking to myself, my mom maybe transposed the numbers. Right. <laughs> numbers happen. It's probably 40 barrels a day. I'll call my buddy up in Kentucky tomorrow and get the lowdown. Ten minutes later, I got the second call, and it was from the very buddy that I was going to call the next day. And he said, uh, Tony, have you heard about the well? And I said, well, I just got a call from mother. And he said, well, Tony, you got to get up here. He said, I've seen you do it before. The well is making 4,000 barrel a day. And if there's anybody that knows how to take advantage of this, it's you. I hung up the phone. Uh, within 20 minutes, I had packed. I was on the road. I drove all night long, uh, arrived at the uh, uh, the well site the next morning. And by 10 o'clock that, that day, I had the owner of that well in, in the lawyer's office with paperwork and I'd agreed to buy it for a million bucks. I had to have the million bucks in five days and I had $30,000 in the bank. Five days later, I had raised the million dollars, closed the deal, and uh, haven't looked back since. I'm guessing the bank didn't give you that on a postcard this time. You probably had to hustle a little more. I had I to hustle a lot, didn't get it from the bank. Yeah, you got uh, investors, right? Individuals? From banks. I actually raised it from individuals. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I was able to uh, to raise that money. You know, like I said, in, in five days and close the deal. I mean, that sounds like a huge turning point. I mean, my little math brain is thinking a million bucks is a present value for something making 160 a day. Obviously there's expenses, but that sounds like a pretty good deal. Is that, is that, was that a big turning point? Is it kind of don't look back since then or what happened since? Well, I, uh, I learned a tremendous amount, obviously, in my prior failures and and uh, all the things that I did. Uh, you know, I knew first off I didn't want to take any bank debt whatsoever, uh, and uh, and so I haven't uh, to this day. I don't owe any money to any banks. Haven't borrowed any money from any banks on any of the drilling projects that that I have done. So that was uh, was certainly useful as a lesson from the early part of my career. Uh, but yes, it was a turning point because uh, I didn't run out and do all the stupid things that I did the first time around. Right. Uh, I was older. Uh, yeah. I was able to manage it better. And I was able to recognize failure sooner and I believe make better decisions. And so... Ultimately, I parlayed that million dollars into about $30 million. 
Mm-hmm. And that helped set me up to go to several other places. And so from there, I, I went to uh, southern part of the Illinois Basin, uh, from there to Michigan, uh, West Virginia, Colorado, Kansas, uh, Texas, California, uh, Wyoming, Montana. I've had three pretty large projects in Australia. And so I've been able to basically just continue from from one project to the next, and each project seems to get a little bit bigger, a little bit better. And it it goes back to the addiction of not having a ceiling again. And so what do, you, what do you think if, if you go back and look at it? I know you're still drilling some things. Are you still acquiring properties too? So it's a combination of drilling and then buying existing operating wells. Is that true? Is it a combination? Well, I, I've done I've done all those things, Jeff. My forte is is not in day to day management right. of a lot of employees and et cetera. My uh, forte is really in in finding the unpolished diamond and turning that unpolished diamond into something that will attract someone else and they'll pay a a great price for that. I love that phrase, finding the unpolished diamond. Think, (laughs) I mean, you were in the diamond business for a while, first of all. And, uh, and then I know you, you know, we met recently, so I I didn't know all that uh, history. I didn't know you then. And so I can see that development, but I also see you you know, uh, as a very uh, generous person today, and you sort of describe yourself as this sort of adrenaline junkie early in your life, you know, from racing that turns that into business and kind of has a failure. Now you have a win, but clearly there was a big spiritual development during those, those years and a change, not just from your spending habits, but from a spiritual outlook. Maybe take us through a little bit of, of that timeline and how that happened. Well, I think my first failure, which I would categorize as from uh, from 1987 uh, until 1990, you know, I was in a rebuilding mode from a business standpoint, but I was still determined to do it myself. And so I had still not been humbled, even though uh, I'd suffered failures. And yes, it was humbling. My ego was was probably as big as ever. And I was just more determined. It's, um, and, you know, I keep using the racing analogy, but in, in dirt bike racing, certainly in, in motocross racing, uh, it's not uncommon to take a fall that maybe takes you three, four seconds to recover. Now, your opponents can make it a long ways around the track in four seconds. But if you're good enough and you have enough time, you can catch them. Yeah. And so a fall doesn't necessarily knock you out of the race. In fact, I have won a ton of races where I took at least one fall in the race, but I got up and went on to win. Business is sort of the same way. You take your setbacks, but you never give up. You stay focused and you get back up and you get going as fast as you possibly can. And so 
you know, my my first failures were not failures enough, really, to affect my ego. They were three uh, to four second track falls. It, in exactly. Your, yeah. yeah. I mean, they obviously lasted, but the analogy is the same. No, they right. Momentary yeah. blips to right. get back on the horse and get get going. And later on in my career, I was fortunate again. I got involved in a project in Australia. We were able to sell it to a major company. My partners and I made a made a ton of money. And as one of my partners said, we made just enough money to be dangerous. We made enough <laughs> money to think we were smart. Right, um, and so uh, we end up buying a, a business that initially was was great. It turns out that we had we had gotten in bed with some people who, let's say, were disingenuous at best, uh, and so I end up having some probably the the largest difficulties in my life, certainly business wise, during that time period. I ended up getting sued personally, multiple lawsuits by people who I'd never even met because of the business that that we had purchased. That was a, a humbling experience, and uh, it, that I have absolutely no regrets for for one reason and one reason only is that God finally humbled me enough to say, "Well, wait a minute." You know, maybe I'm not half as smart as I think I am. Maybe I'm not in control. Maybe I'm trusting in my own understanding. One of my dear friends in Michigan, his favorite verse is Proverbs 3, 5, 6. And that has really resonated with me over the over the course of time. And uh, I'm just going to, uh, well, I was going to pull it up. Uh, for you, but uh, because I and I, I want to be precise in the language, even though I have it memorized, there are lots of different versions, and uh, and uh, you know I'm going to read you the uh, uh, New Living Translation version of Proverbs three five six, and it says, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart; do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you." which path to take, you know, that wasn't me. Yeah. You know, uh, I was always relying on my own understanding. You know, when, when you race and you mentioned tennis, you know, certainly when you play in singles tennis, and I've also played a lot of tennis, you're out there by yourself. You, yeah. There's no one else to rely on when you race by and large. I know you have pit crews and everything, but ultimately the rider or the driver you're relying on your own uh, abilities and you're not relying on God at that point. Right. So to me, business was a lot the same way. It's how I learned and I refuse to rely on anybody else other than myself. And I never ask anybody else to show me the path. When God finally gave me the gift of failure, to the point that there was really no place else to turn, then only then did I start to trust in the Lord with, with all my heart, uh, rely on him and say, hey, this is not about me. You know, it's about 
what God is allowing me to do. And as I, I look back, it's, it's, um, uh, I'm hesitant, Jeff, to, to even bring it up because it, it sounds like that I'm bragging and it really isn't. It's with the most of humility of thanking God because, you know, as I mentioned in all this racing, I crashed a helicopter into a body of water as the helicopter sank and the blades are still spinning. I went through the blades and somehow one of the blades hit me in my back shoulder blade, barely missed the back of my head. Another one hit me in my ankle and chipped a, a bone in my ankle. And yet I came swimming away. I don't know of anyone else that has crashed a helicopter and gone through the blades with them spinning and lived to tell about it. I crashed a hot air balloon into high tension power lines and the balloon exploded. I fell to the ground, didn't even get a burn mark and walked away. I've hit a car going 120 miles an hour and total a car and I walked away. Well, you've totaled <laughs> more kinds of things with motors than I've even ridden in. <laughs> okay. And, and it sounds, uh, uh, forgive me for uh, the analogy, but maybe, maybe you crashed a couple of deals. I mean, you've, you, you also won a bunch of races, but, you know, we always remember the crashes, I think, more than the victories. And, and, and unfortunately, I think God uses us. You know, he can transform us more in the, in the valley than he does at the mountaintop. I wish it wasn't so, but I know it's, he's done that with me. It sounds like that's what's happened. And, and to me, it seems kind of obvious. It's, it's an amazing, we, we get some amazing stories of redemption on this, uh, on this podcast. Uh, but this to me is an amazing, kind of obvious, like, it, you know, the, these particular skills that God gave you that sort of led to ego, but then you translate them into business. You have some of the same crashes you come back to an understanding of him. So how does that affect you now? Like, I know you to be a guy who's super passionate about Christian education and that sort of thing. So how did you translate your mindset into just a focus on winning to a focus on blessing others? Well, I, I view myself, Jeff, as a numbers guy. I'm pretty good at numbers. I'm pretty good at looking at odds. And the reason that I bring up the the crashes and the incidents is that 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 I have been able to defy the odds over and over and over and over, and I have to ask myself why. You know, am am I that lucky, or you know, is God watching over me? And the conclusion that I came to is that nobody's that lucky. Uh, God is watching over me. And I can then stretch that out into business of how, how I've had, uh, you know, what I would say devastating failure, but God has allowed me to recover. Yeah. And so when I finally figured that out and said, yeah, I need to trust in God. Uh, and I'll give you an, another story. I've related this to you, but it, it's, um, uh, you know, I went through a period of redemption uh, Jeff, uh, where uh, I needed to win every business deal. Uh, you know, I uh, I thought that 
you know, it was incumbent upon me to get the last penny out of every deal. Uh, I had a business deal and uh, I realized uh, I gave my word on a business deal and shook hands on the business deal. Before the deal could close, the value of the project I was selling doubled. I won't go into the details, but it doubled. My partner, uh, and I hadn't actually signed the deal. We had shook hands on the deal, but we hadn't signed the deal. Uh, my partner says, hey, whoa, wait a minute. I don't, uh, you know, we haven't signed the deal. A deal's not done until it's signed. In my earlier business career, I would have totally agreed. and said, yep, you know, hey, what does shaking hands mean? You know, that that's, it, isn't that something old-fashioned? Uh, because it's not signed. Well, as I was praying about it, God clearly told me that my word was more important than any amount of money that we could, any additional money that we could make. And so I signed the deal. Uh, it had a, an effective date in the future. It had a closing date in the future, uh, but I signed the deal. When the closing date came, the other party couldn't close. They had some difficulties. And so they defaulted on the deal. Fast forward 60 days later, they call me back and said, we can close now. And by the way, we'll pay you double what the offer was just 60 days ago. That's a God thing. Because had I have not have signed the deal, it means that I was not trustworthy, that they, they couldn't trust me. And I don't think that they would have called me back in 60 days. I think they would have tried to find an alternative. And in fact, the day that the gentleman called me, he said, Tony, the fact that you kept your word, even though you knew it was going to cost you millions of dollars, is why we want to deal with you. And so to me, that was God, you know, saying, hey, I told you, <laughs> you know, trust me and I'll take care of you. And I trusted him and he took care of me. I love that story. I mean, it. He, he, he gave you the money, but, but he, there was a potential sacrifice. I mean, there's a lot of, I'm thinking of a lot of stories in the Bible where God asked people to do things that seemed kind of irrational by the world's eyes, but then he took care of it later. But, but that's what faith is, right? You don't see the other side, but he's so generous. He, he allowed you to see that other side and still uh, give you those things. Well, Tony, this has been amazing. We could go for uh, many hours of stories. Cause I know you got more, I've heard some of them and uh, maybe we'll have you back uh, one day to go through more of them. But, you know, I'm just thinking of uh, as we kind of get toward the end of our time together on this podcast, I'm thinking of somebody driving down the street, listening to this, maybe they're coming out of their own little wreck, if you will, uh, in business. And, you know, there's all kinds of strange things that have happened through COVID and now what looks like a recession and that sort of thing. But maybe somebody's just coming out of uh, a little wreck of their own and they're trying to recover and uh, get back in the race. And I'm just thinking, you know, what, what's uh, and, and again, this podcast is just a bunch of business people uh, like us having a conversation, hoping it, that it's a blessing and praying that it's a blessing to others on their on their path, as Proverbs three would say. 
So just for a little bit of gas in their tank, if you will, what's a practical tip you could share uh, with somebody driving down the road that would, you know, maybe they could implement as a, as a business owner that wants to be a little more generous tomorrow. Well, I, I would like to sum it up this way, Jeff, is, is that for any, what I believe, rational human being uh, that can read and has access to a library or to history, you can do the research as Lee Strobel did in the case for Christ. Do your own research. You don't have to trust Lee or any other author to that matter. Uh, and what are you researching? Are you research? I would suggest that you research, was there a man named Jesus? Was he born? Was he crucified? And did he die? I don't think there's any question. The evidence is overwhelming. There's not even an atheist that I know that will try to dispute Roman history. And so basically, that portion of it is indisputable. It then comes down to all of life, in my opinion, did Jesus come back to life? Was there a resurrection day? There, that takes some faith, quite honestly. But there's tremendous evidence. You know, we, I can envision being on a jury and convicting someone of being guilty based on circumstantial evidence. We do it all the time in our society. We make, uh, we make decisions. We form opinions based on circumstantial evidence. The circumstantial evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is absolutely overwhelming. So you almost have to, to um, use silly putty to come up with some type of a different conclusion. But once you accept that Jesus came back to life, then your whole world should change, because that means that God is real. And if God is real, then we're here temporary. All the things that we think are important are not nearly as important. We really have one job. And that's trying to do the very best we can for ourselves, our friends, our family, uh, not trample on the rights of, of other people. And to go back to, and I'll sum it up with Proverbs 3, 5, 6 again, and to repeat, never, ever rely on your own understanding. Put your faith in God, and he'll show you the path to take. Well, what a perfect place to end it, uh, Tony. Thanks so much for being with us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know that you are now running your race for God's, God's glory, not your own. And so that's uh, a great way, place to leave it. And thank you for the encouragement. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us this week on the Generous Business Owner Podcast. See you next week. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.